Father, I just really ask, Lord, that the things that are important on your heart today that I would say that, um, Holy Spirit, that you would come alongside me, that there, there are things that need to be said today that you want to say, and I just pray that I'd be obedient, that I would hear you, and Father, I pray that those things that are from you would be received. I really um, am very dependent upon you, Holy Spirit, so I really give you this time, Father, and I just ask that you would come down upon us now, and our ears would hear what you have to say, in Jesus' name. My name is Lynn, I'm one of the pastors here at the barn. And um, we, are, we are in a series called Do Not Grieve the Holy Spirit. So I'm taking one section of that, and it's actually a pretty important section to me. Um, I feel I get to say some things today that um, have been in my heart for years and decades, and I've never been able to say in the church. So um, it's kind of an important day for me. I hope it goes well. <laughs> um, when I, at one point when I was growing up, I overheard my, um, my dad's secretary. Now, she was a lot more. She was called a secretary, but honestly, she was really in our life for decades, and she saw me growing up. And I overheard her say, oh, I just feel so sorry. You can't call me this, but my name growing up was Terry, and I'm called Lynn. That's my middle name. But um, said, I feel so sorry for Terry because she lives such an abnormal life. Now... At that point, I went, I, I didn't say anything, but I was like, what? I live an abnormal life. She feels sorry for me. What's up? What's wrong with my life? And at that point, it was kind of a wake-up call that maybe my life was a little different than other people's lives. And, um, and I just remember that vivid, you know, you have these moments that are kind of pregnant with meaning. That was one of my moments that I realized that possibly other people lived differently than I lived. See, because the thing is, when you grow up in your family, you think it's normal. Until you, you know, get out of your home and see what other people do, for good or bad, you find out that other people live differently than you do. And so we don't really know what normal is. I think that's a good analogy to when we get saved. You know, we've lived our life up until that time, and we've lived it and doing all sorts of things, and mostly what we want to do. And then we get saved, and, and suddenly things are different. We are a new creation. There are new, there are new things. Um, Natasha talked about the path to him today. We have a new path to travel. And, and suddenly we're not exactly sure how to behave. And then what we need is the Lord teaching us to behave the way he had always planned us to behave. So today I'm going to talk about the normal Christian life according to God. And what specifically, and there are specifics in scripture, what specifically grieves the Holy Spirit. So, um, we're going to start with Ephesians, the chapter Ephesians 4. And Paul gives us a lot of practical help in that in that chapter. And that's the chapter that has the only place in Scripture where it talks about the Holy Spirit being grieved. Go, um, Janine, go to the next one. Okay, this is in Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now that means, as believers, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, right? He wouldn't say it if you couldn't do it. 
So somehow there are these things that we do that grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul is speaking to the Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, and you might say, well, gee, why did he need to speak so much about this? This whole chapter is on unity, and it's about taking the old man off and putting the old man on. And what that specifically means is taking old behavior and throwing it away and putting new behavior on because we're new believers and we have a new way to walk. And why would that be so important in Ephesus? The reason it was is they had Jewish people and they had Gentile people who had historically never gotten along, ever. And suddenly they were in a church together and they had to learn to live in unity. That's huge. And they had to learn. So Paul is addressing that issue. So let's, let's look at what that word grieving means. What, um, I think it means a whole lot more than we think of when we think of grieving. It's actually a very surprising word. It is grieving refers to the pain that only um, can be experienced between two people who deeply love each other. The, the picture is of a spouse who, um, of two people who, really, really love each other, and one, one of the spouse has been unfaithful, and the other spouse is in grief, and that's a pain that is so deep, they're devastated, and they're, they're, the pain is really deep. And so what does that say about our relationship with the Holy Spirit? What does that say about it? It says that we're two people deeply in love. We're two people. I mean, we have this relationship, the Holy Spirit is here. He was given to us to walk with us, all alongside us, all the time. And what Paul's saying is, we can deeply, deeply, deeply hurt the Holy Spirit. And it would be really important that we know what those things are, right? So that, not just so it's in our head, but that we can ask the Holy Spirit to change that behavior in us. But I think you need awareness first. You need to know what actually does that. Um, You know, the Holy Spirit in Scripture um, is symbolized by the dove. Let's do the next one, picture. There's the dove. The dove. It's not surprising. The Holy Spirit is like a dove. What does that say about his personality? He's very sensitive. He's very gentle. Um, A dove will leave if there's too much noise or if there's something scaring him, he leaves, right? I mean, it says a whole lot about the personality of the Holy Spirit. Very gentle. The dove is known to be a very gentle animal. Um, Here's another way to say this verse. See the next, next one, please? Stop deeply wounding and causing such extreme emotional pain in the Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed into the day of your redemption. I'm really grateful that Paul goes on to give specifics because I can think of a lot of things that may grieve the Holy Spirit, but I might not be right. And these are very specific things. So let's go to what the scriptures, where he outlines what grieves the Holy Spirit. It's Ephesians 4, 26. Starts there. Be angry. Good going, Janine. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. 
He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So he lists these actions. Paul's very specific. He lists lying. He lists anger. Actually, I think lying is in the verse ahead because I didn't deal with it. Lying, anger, stealing, and destructive language. I'm going to talk today about about anger and destructive language because he uses more words to describe those two than anything else. So I'm going to go hone in on those. But these are actions, all of them are actions and words that Paul says grieve the Holy Spirit. They're all relational. They're all about us. They're not about us and God. They're about us. And so let's start with the first one. Be angry and do not sin. Uh, Janine, can you go to the next one, please? Oh, go next. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. You know, this verse assumes that we do get angry. It's not saying you never get angry. It says, be angry, but do not sin. Um, this is a precarious place to be when we get angry. It's, to me, it's like being on a cliff. And you can either jump into the cliff and die, or you can back away. That there are limitations to our anger here. We, there's time limitations. We can't handle being angry for really more than a... I don't know how many periods... It depends on when you get mad, but you have until bedtime. You don't have much time to deal with it. So there's something that says about us. We can't deal with anger that lasts longer and longer and hours and days and months and years. We can't do that. And then there's the limitation, too, that we don't want to give a place to the devil. Can you think of that? A place, and this is written to believers, a place to the devil. If you go beyond a certain time limit, you're actually giving a place to the devil. To me, that um, I don't want to give a place, I mean, to the devil. I don't want to rent out a room to him. Do you? That sounds very dangerous. So there are limitations there. Um, There are time limits and expression limits. To add to our problems, when we get angry... We have all these chemical reactions, physiological reactions. And we need to learn, fortunately, in the Holy Spirit, you can deal with anger. You can. There is a way to deal. And here's a fact. I didn't find this out until I was an adult. Actually, I was in my 30s. And it came as one of those light bulbs in my head. And I'll share it with you. Maybe you already know it. But if you don't, I'm giving you a really important thing today. When I'm angry at Bruce, and, you know, do do you know you mainly get angry? That kind of anger usually happens with people you know because you feel safe to do it there where you would never do it to somebody out in public. Okay, so when I'm angry with Bruce, and that happens once every 10 years, um, (laughs) I I used to have in my vocabulary this sentence, he makes me so mad. 
Do you know that's a fallacy? Do you know that's not true? Do you know that nobody can make you angry? Do you know no matter what you go through, nobody can have that kind of power over you? Do you know that you are not a victim to anger? That you have a choice? You see, I never use that language anymore. I take responsibility for my own, uh, my own emotions. I still get mad at you, but I say, I get mad at you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I don't say, he ever makes me mad. And that's a really important thing, because once you understand that you can handle anger, that you have a choice on where it goes, then you can take it to God and go, get rid of it, please. So let's go to, um, let's go to the next verse. This is Ephesians 4.29. Let no unwholesome word, here's some other meetings, coarse, um, for want of other words, dirty, you know what I'm talking about, swearing, vulgar, judgmental, accusatory words come from your mouth. But now here's the positive, only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. You see what words are supposed to do? It's like you have a gift of grace that I can give right now to Rod. I can give him a gift of grace. Um, I love the, the creation story, and I love the fact that God made creation come together, form, be created through words. And we are God's children. If we could grasp how important our words are, if we could grasp that, we would be so much more careful of our words. Because our words build things. They, um, there's something called um, performative language. Even the, our culture understands this. Performative language is language that establishes realities. Well, secular people understand this. We should really understand it because we're God's children and we're in his image. So our words build things. You know, scripture says, in your tongue is the power of life and death. Okay, we build things and we're always building things. Whether it's destructive or whether it's good, we are always building things. You know, my mom only lost her temper with me once in my whole childhood. And do you know that that one period of time actually gave me certain feelings about her that I really had to struggle with for years? You see, like one time period of speaking, you're always building something. Yes, I know. Well, you can go and ask forgiveness. That didn't, that didn't happen. But, um, but you're building something. Edification actually means to build a building. So if you can think of your words as building something, you are, when you are kind to somebody, you are building a building for them to encourage them to go further in the Lord. Um, I have a story. I have a little story to tell. Um, but my grandkids gave me permission, but they don't want you to know that it's them. Um, so I have 10 grandkids... And, I've ch- and so they're hoping that you will decide it's two other grandchildren than them, and I'm going to call them Bob and Sally. Okay? So the other day I was swimming with Bob and Sally, 
And we decided to do this contest and where they would have to jump in and then I was the judge. I got to decide who did a better thing, whether it was comedy or drama or we had all these different categories. Okay, so I was calling out these categories and they were jumping in. Well, every time Bob jumped in, Sally just said, oh, that was terrible, that was this, that was that, your legs weren't right, this wasn't right. But then when Sally jumped in, guess what Bob did? No, 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 that's not good, that's not good. I, oh, you were terrible. And then I turned to them and I said, who made you guys the judge? Who made you? I'm the judge. You're not the judge. I'm the judge. You guys are just supposed to jump in. And then I thought, isn't that so much like God and us? Who made us the judge? Who made us the one who could accuse people and who could judge people and make all these decisions about other people? We're not the judge. So, um, okay, let's go to the next verse. Okay, there's 30, but I'm going to go to 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Six words all about anger. Okay, first word, bitterness. This has a, as, at its root a plant, at, at its root. Um, it, it means a plant, a poisonous plant. That's the actual root of bitterness. And what's, what's difficult about bitterness is that it's often real deep inside of us, and we actually don't see it on the surface. So I might have a root of bitterness and not even know it, you see? Or you definitely wouldn't know it looking at me if I had a root of bitterness until it went, came and actually popped out of the ground, and then you'd know. But that could take years. This is the kind of anger that stays hidden, Okay, and it's very, very dangerous. Sometimes I think it's more dangerous than the others that are so much more visible because nobody knows it and you might not know it. And you may be full of pride and think you're not, you don't have this at all. And so that's why David constantly went to the Lord and said, check out my heart. Check out my heart. If there's anything in there, please take it away. Because he understood that you don't always know the truth of your heart. You just don't know. And so that's one thing. Let's go to um, wrath. Now, wrath is different, and anybody can see wrath. Wrath is very quick, loud, noisy, abrupt, and it also dies away very quickly. It's explosive. Uh, I see we have have a person here who's saying, isn't it interesting how you can always point out someone else's, though, right? That's so interesting. Um, but that may, you know, you, you already know what that is, right? You've seen it. It's, the, it's the, the anger that just erupts, okay? It's wrath. It's, it's um, sudden. I don't know why Paul put the third one in, anger. That's a general word. It just means anger. So I think he said, you know what? I can't describe all the all the different kinds of anger. So I'm just going to put this general term in case I don't get all of them. So that's anger. Clamor is basically shouting, screaming, yelling, just a clamor. Slander is speech specifically made. It's intentional to injure somebody else. That's an intentional thing. Malice is probably the worst of all of these. 
because you want to injure somebody else and you're even willing to break the law to do it. So that is probably the worst. Okay, now Paul's not going to, doesn't want to just leave it there. And I'm going to do this really. Go to the next. He wants to always tell you the positive. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us and offering a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay, I want to tell a story now. And I, I feel like it's really important for us to honor people in our history who have done so much so that we can be where we are now. And um, this, this guy was not honored very much during his time period, and um, he's still not honored very much. So I would like to talk a little bit about William Seymour. And there's a reason. The reason is that he really took these verses and held them up as really important. He did not ever want to grieve the Holy Spirit. Um, so there he is. And he, there are two people that are given credit for the Azusa Revival. If you don't know what the Azusa Revival was, it happened in April 1906. It was a massive revival in California, Los Angeles. And um, there were three years of amazing meetings, nonstop, three meetings a day, but they all ran together and they went all night. So it sounds like it was like nonstop to me. And um, in this little warehouse, and it's where the Pentecostal church began. Now, um, the event was so amazing that the aftershock, they, people talk about it as an earthquake that happened in Los Angeles a spiritual earthquake, and the aftershock waves have gone out for more than 100 years. And they estimate, historians estimate, first of all, during the time period, affected thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pastors from around the world. At times, and I can't understand that, this warehouse only fit 350 people, but at times in Los Angeles to be at these meetings, there were 10,000 people waiting to get into the meetings. So I don't know what that looked like, but um, historians say that 600 million people were saved through what happened at Azusa Street. So, I mean, that's over time because it's continued and continued and continued. So let me tell you about William. He was born in 1870. If you think about history, 1870 was five five years after the um, Civil War ended. It was a horribly vicious time for, and I'm going to tell you right now, um, there are a lot of different, I could use African American, I could use black, I could use person of color. I don't want to offend anybody, but I'm going to use whites and blacks, okay? It's just easier, because not every, every um, person of color is from Africa, right? So I don't want to say just African American. And so, anyway, that's what I'm going to do. I hope I don't offend anybody on that. Um, but it was a terrible, terrible time for, for blacks. William was born into this era where Ku Klux Klan was on the rise, started by Christians, by the way, um, a very strong force. Jim Crow laws had been established so that there was really no social justice for blacks at all, and segregation was everywhere. And here's William. He's a humble man. He comes to the Lord. He becomes saved. And even his greatest enemy 
He had, a, he, had a, he had some enemies. Even the greatest enemy said that he was the most humble man on earth. When your enemy says that, you can be pretty sure it's true. By all accounts, he was a very pleasant and kind person to be with. He was very hungry for the Lord. He so badly wanted to go to Bible school, and you couldn't in those days if you were black. You just couldn't do it. And so he talked to someone. He got permission from a guy named Charles Parham um, in, I think they were in Texas at that point, to sit outside of the classroom and have the door cracked a little bit open so that he could just hear. And you know what? He embraced that humility, a humility, that humiliation so much just because he wanted to know the Lord. And so he did that. He would just like sit there and just, you know, just listen and listen and listen. So then, shortly after his school experience, he was um, sent, he was called to Los Angeles. And William started these little tiny meetings. It started out with 12 people. And then the Holy Spirit just came down. And from then on, it was just history. It just grew and grew and grew. Now, here are some things about Seymour that I think made a good foundation for this particular work. He had a rule, a guideline, that no unkind words were ever to be spoken about another. He didn't want the Holy Spirit to be grieved. Does this sound familiar from from Ephesians? And there's no record of Seymour ever saying a negative word about anyone. And he had many people who treated him very badly. Um, For Seymour, love was more important than anything else. Let's go to the next... Okay, that's, that's where they met. Next, next one. The Pentecostal power, which he means the Holy Spirit coming down with his power, when you sum it all up, is just more of God's love. If it does not bring more of God's love, it's simply a counterfeit. For Seymour, love was the standard, not manifestations, not anything like that, but love was the standard. He also believed in the unity of the church, and he had this right from the early times of being a believer. He wanted, his, in his heart, in his, just his picture, he saw what happened on, in Acts 2, where nations had come together. 3,000 people, all from different nations, came together and were saved. He saw that as the protocol for the church. He felt that when all different nations got together, that's when the Holy Spirit came down the strongest. And because the Holy Spirit loves that. This is what he said. Um, Oh, this is about unity. If you get angry, he says, or speak evil or backbite, I care not how many tongues you may have. You have not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. For over three and a half years, Um, They had three services a day, seven days a week. There was no major leadership for these meetings. He, He was an amazing man. He would put these crates up in the meeting, and then he would sit with his head in the top crate, and he was just praying. He would just be praying, and then when the Lord told him to speak, he'd get up and start speaking. Um... A lot of other people spoke like he really believed that the Holy Spirit could guide a meeting. Um, Here's what... um, I I just looked at a YouTube thing this morning of the last two 
people living who had actually attended these meetings, at, and they both had been healed dramatically um, from tuberculosis, one, and from the other was congenital deafness. They both, and they were now in their 80s, and um, it was in 1974. So they were talking, and they said it was amazing that people would come from all different nations. It touched 50 nations, and they had Japanese coming. They had Jewish people coming. They had Hispanic people coming, and they would hear the gospel in their own languages, people spoke in tongues. It was amazing. And then the people would get saved, get a foundation, and then go be missionaries. So there was constant going out. It was amazing. Here's, um, here's what one person said about it. Uh, next, please. People of every race and nationality were found in the crowds that converged on the mission. No respect of persons was found among the worshipers. The rich and educated were the same as the poor and uneducated. Pride, self-assertion, and self-importance could not survive there. Races were completely integrated. There was no racial prejudice in the service. African Americans, Caucasian Americans, Chinese, and Jews attended the services. This was a, a, a move of God, no advertising, no, you know, all day, all night for a thousand days, and so much buy-in from so many nations. and so, so how did this famous revival end? That's always my question. Oh, how did it end? I love to study revivals, but I always want to know, why did it end? What happened? Well, anger entered in. Many ridiculous conflicts. For two years, it went well. The third year, conflicts entered in. They started fighting over, this was a big fight, um, over neckties. Could a sanctified man wear a necktie? And I'm still wondering about that. No. <laughs> Some of the people felt that, that they needed to make a storm shelter at the mission. But then other people felt that was a real step of unfaith. William um, Seymour got married. And there were a lot of people there that felt, why are you getting married? It's the end times. And so they were very upset about that. There was a lot of contention, a lot of cantankerousness and judging of one another. And then there were bigger fights. Um, Charles Parham, who had been his teacher, um, Seymour invited him to come and look at what was happening, thinking that he would just be, wow, this is great. But he didn't. He came, and he has said some awful things about it. You can read them online if you're interested. I'm not going to repeat them. But they were terrible. They were prejudiced, and they were very, just very horrible. And it hurt Seymour a lot. Well, then Parham wanted to take over the meeting. And you know, when, when you have a meeting like this and someone decides to take it over and there's anger and there's prejudice and all sorts of things, the Holy Spirit can't stay there. The Holy Spirit can't stay. He's a gentle, a gentle one, a gentle person. He can't stay where there's bickering and fighting and who's going to be in charge. It just doesn't work. And so... The Holy Spirit left. And so, but until the day he died, Seymour believed that the real miracle in the Bible was the act second thing of all the nations coming together. Now, I have, I have so much I could say about this. But you know, revivals seldom end because of the trouble from the outside. I mean, newspaper articles may be detrimental or people from the outside may not like what's happening. But revivals 
almost never end because of that. I, I'm not even sure they've ever ended because of that. They end because of inside trouble. You know, racism, fighting, jealousy, and power plays stop this revival. And I, I think it's a problem that we need to take really seriously. I mean, the Holy Spirit is doing something right now among us. It's wonderful. We love it. I'm excited about it. But we don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. And one of the things, I mean, right now in our nation, I feel like almost, and I'm not talking about, I'm not going to get into politics, but what I feel has happened is actually, you know, a, a vase has been poured out of hatred, of conflict, of anger, of saying anything you want to say. Okay? And we are the people of God. We have to be different. We have to be different. We have to be different in our relationships with other churches. We have to be different in our relationships with other ethnic groups. We have to be because God made us all. And that brings us together. We have to have the mind of God. We have to be kind to each other. We have to be careful about what we say. You know, God has a higher standard for us than he does our, I mean, than he does our country. I mean, he has the same standard, but they're not listening. He has a higher standard for us, though. And, and so I really ask, I really implore, the next four months are going to be ugly. I feel that. They may continue to be ugly. And I'm just saying, we need to be a different people. We need to be kind in our families. We need to be kind in our church. We need to be kind to people outside of our church. And this thing about nations coming together, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And so if you have any wrong attitudes, one time I realized my roommate in college was Jewish, and she hurt me very badly, and I started realizing that inside me was this feeling that I didn't like Jewish people. So I had to get rid of that, and I did. You can get rid of these things just by, you know, how do you do these things? How do you, you know, get rid of some things and, and, and put on other things that God wants us to? It isn't head knowledge, and it's not theology. What it is, you become aware. The Bible makes us aware of where we have a problem. But then we go to the Lord and just say, here I am. Change me. Change me into who you are. If that doesn't help after a few times of praying, go to your friends and confess your sin because that'll do it for sure. The light will come on and you will be changed. God wants transformation. Father, I really give us this church. We are, we are headed for some new things, Father, that are just exciting. And Father, I just really pray that we would not do anything to grieve the Holy Spirit. Anything that's in us, hidden or obvious, that is something that could grieve you, that does grieve you, Lord, we're asking you to get rid of it. Holy Spirit, bring conviction of sin and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 So we're going to um, have some time of prayer for those who want it. Um, we have prophetic ministry over here and healing ministry over here. And, and if you want to respond and, and make yourself open to the Holy Spirit changing you in this area of anger and, and um, you know, disunity and, and, 
anything else, come on up and, and we'll pray with you. Um, for the rest of us, we, let's go party, right? Let's go eat. Let's go get wet. Let's uh, do the things that are going to be fun and, and, and try to meet someone new.